when you think of the best things that life has to offer, what comes to mind? Perhaps it's family, maybe friends, maybe it's even food. I've mentioned this to some of you, but no doubt, if you get a chance to go to Los Angeles, California, Al's Hot Chicken is completely out of this world. I can't emphasize that enough. Maybe for others, it's a perfectly cooked steak. Maybe it's the best Mexican in town. Certainly, according to the common graces of God, food is something that we enjoy. I'm sure most of us would agree that it is a gift from God. Solomon will say in his book of Ecclesiastes that all of it, whether we eat, whether we drink, we should be merry. It is a gift from God. Food is certainly a gift from God. On top of being a gift to enjoy, I mentioned this last week, but it's an essential element of life. We talked about the three points of survival with air and water and food. Some of us do a better job of this than others, but food, when it's consumed with health and mind, serves as the energy to our engine, the boost for our strength, or a protective barrier against sickness. Or on the flip side of that illustration, whether through the neglect of food or the overindulgence, it becomes a detriment to energy, a hindrance to our strength, or maybe even at times a promoter of sickness. Either way, whether the positive or negative example, the motivation behind food from the flesh's perspective is often selfish. In one sense, the athlete would be hard-pressed to give up his vital nutrients in a way that might harm his performance. Even for the simple, healthy person, to give up food would, in many ways, take away from his commitment to feel good about himself. Or in some ways hold back sickness based on his diet. Ultimately, from a negative example, let me back up and say this, from a negative example, if those are positive, even though giving up food is a matter of necessity for those that indulge in it too much when it comes to physical or even mental health, ultimately the primary reason behind it all is once again, I'm going to make the argument often anchored in personal gain. Now, I'm not in any way trying to paint our motivations concerning food in an entirely negative light. I get it. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit and we should steward them well. Amen? However, at the end of the day, 
And I think we're all susceptible in the flesh to feeding that flesh. No pun intended. What's more, when it comes to food, I really think this is an area that is easier to turn a blind eye to. In our walks with Christ, at least on the surface, gluttony just doesn't seem to carry the weight of sin that other sins perhaps carry, humanly speaking. Or the idolatry of health, and that can be a thing, concerning food, certainly seems to be easier to be pawned off as just our commitment to take care of our bodies. All that to say. Maybe this is why, I think, for most Christians, fasting is an afterthought. It's not practiced by most. In one sense, to give up food, which we understand primarily fasting to be, is to take away one of life's greatest pleasures, like I just talked about Al's hot chicken. Not to mention a pleasure that's not inherently sinful. On the other hand, maybe giving up food is less an issue, but for the actual sake of spiritual significance, it's a long shot. Sadly, and I don't want to throw everyone under the bus here, but I'll say for many, this is an example that we see with Roman Catholicism during Lent. A fast from meat for most leads to nothing but a fish fry event. An event surrounded by fun and games as compared to anything to do with spiritual significance. You see, beloved, the question needs to be, as it always is, what does the Bible communicate about fasting? Is it a command? And if so, is it still valid today? If it's practiced, are the guidelines how we should fast? One thing's for sure, if, if fast, fasting is still practiced, we certainly know it entails abstaining from food on one level. Or for that matter, could we even say that we could fast from something else besides food? And then ultimately, if it's practice, what do we replace whatever we fast with? As for this morning, we're going to answer all of those questions with one overarching question. What is biblical fasting? as we've worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount and coming to Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. One aspect behind even this message, which we've seen going back to the end of chapter 5, is that Jesus continually is driving home the point of self-sacrifice. We've seen that time and time again. As for our passage today, Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18, We'll call the theme, true fasting is self-sacrificial. Similar to what we saw with prayer, similar to what we saw with self-sacrificial hypocrisy 
throughout this exposition. So, I invite you to open your Bibles, if you're not already there, to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. The title of today's message is Self-Sacrificial Fasting. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm excited to preach this message. As I stated, I do think it's an area that within Christendom is often pushed aside for whatever reason, but it's the Word of God. Amen? We need to deal with it. Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18 reads, Now, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Amen. You may be seated. So the answer in answering our question, what is biblical fasting, I want us to look at three observations. And the first one is, number one, the history of fasting. Look again with me at verse 16. He says, Now whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance, so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, I mentioned this in the introduction, but the word fast in its basic, historical, and current form entails abstaining from food. However, from a biblical perspective, there's much more than to it. There has always and will always be a spiritual component linked to it. Just that preliminary cursory, basic definition up front is essential to lay out. Even so, before we deal with the context of what Jesus is addressing here, I want to give you a little background. I want to give you a little example from the Old Testament regarding the history of fasting. In light of that, the first thing to point out relates to what did God actually command, and I emphasize that, command regarding fasting. And to see that, turn with me to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16. Many of you will know that chapter 16 contextually, is a very important chapter within the Old Testament speaking directly to the Day of Atonement. This is a sacred time for the chosen people of God. One where the high priest on an annual occasion would enter into the Holy of Holies to make, or the tabernacle we should say, make atonement for the sins of the people. With that context in place, look at verses 29 to 31. 
of Leviticus 16. And this shall be a perpetual statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the sojourner who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before Yahweh. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a perpetual statute. So what's the point here in regards to fasting? I tried to emphasize it when I was reading the text, but this humbling of the soul, this relates to fasting here during the Day of Atonement. On top of that, and and this is critical to point out, this is the only time that the nation of Israel was commanded to fast. So at least from God's perspective, once a year on the Day of Atonement, was the only time that Jews were required to fast. Now, just because it was only required once a year doesn't mean that it wasn't practiced in other instances. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. I want to show you several examples. There's numerous we could look to. And as we look at these examples, I want you to hear the motivation behind the fast. But first, turn with me to the book of Daniel, which we were just reading in our scripture reading. If you go to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then you'll find Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. I want to show you one example here when it came to confession of sin and fasting. One particular motivation for sure. Look at verses 3 through 5. So I gave my face to the Lord God to seek Him in prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to Yahweh my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity and acted wickedly and rebelled even turning aside from your commandments and judgments. Now, we'll see this here shortly, but an example like this is really helpful for us to see the contradiction in regards to the Pharisees that Jesus was dealing with. You could say in one sense, Daniel, as a righteous advocate for his people, is even including himself within this prayer and fasting when it comes to sin. Scripture even identifies Daniel as a man of extraordinary spirit. And yet, he says, we have sinned against you while praying and fasting for the people. What's more? 
There's definitely no hint, and even if we read through the rest of this prayer, of any self-aggrandizing here. Puffing himself up. Which is, of course, exactly what Jesus was dealing with in our verses. Let me show you another example. Turn over to the book of Esther. We'll go backwards. First and second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther. Chapter 4. This time, motivationally speaking, relates more to a circumstance of danger. Most of you will be familiar with this account. Haman, who was the Persian king's right-hand man, so to speak, had deceptively orchestrated a plot in order for the Persian king to issue an edict to wipe out, destroy, murder all of the Jews within the land. And yet, in the midst of grave, grave circumstances like that, Esther writes a desperate plea to Mordecai, her adopted father, or technically speaking, her cousin. Look at verse 16. We read, Go gather all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go in to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, you could obviously in one sense make an argument that this plea has self-preservation in it. But ultimately, her her plea for the people to pray and fast is not just for Esther. It's for her people. It's for God's people. As she goes before the king in this manner, it's surely a self-sacrificial motivation, surely spiritually significant. And then let me give you one more. But this time I want to show you an example of what not to do, which sets up our verse in Matthew 6. Turn over to Zechariah which is right before the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Zechariah chapter 7. Contextually here, the prophet had been charged by Yahweh to stir up the people to rebuild the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed in 586 B.C., And as he's speaking to a hard-hearted people, look at what he says in verses 5 and 6. Zechariah chapter 7. Yahweh charging him to say such. Speak to all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? 
And when you eat and when you drink, are you not eating for yourselves? And are you not drinking for yourselves? Beloved, whether it was Zechariah's day, Jesus' day, or ours, biblical fasting is not about ourselves. It's not about a show. Now, this would be hypocrisy, and this is exactly what Jesus was addressing in verse 6. Look there again. Turn back to Matthew. You can see, I'm, I said verse 6, you know what I mean, verse 16. Now you can see that these people were quick to put on a gloomy face. They were quick to purposely neglect their appearance in order to be noticed. We mentioned this in, in a previous message in this series, but even this word, hypocrites, it's connected to the word for mask, which was often even used in a theatric display. These men, for sure, were putting on a show. So much so, in some cases, they would even, history tells us, put on makeup in order to look more disheveled. In some cases, dirt and ashes on their face. Isn't it interesting? This is exactly what is practiced by some people today in the season of Lent. Jesus says, all of this is a hypocritical show. And they have their reward in full. As if to say, it's temporary. It's only for men, if that. Let's emphasize that. No reward coming from the Lord himself. In Luke chapter 18, we won't go there, but we actually see that these men even turn the act of fasting into a legalistic, moralistic demonstration of their piousness and their righteousness. History tells us that they would fast, in Luke 18 it says that they would fast two times a week. We know, historically speaking, that it just so happened that those two fasts were on the second and fifth day of the week. And you know why that was? Because it just so happened that the second and fifth day of the week were the busiest days of the week at the market. Go figure. On top of that hypocrisy, instead of seeing fasting as a simple means for a deeper dependence on God and seeking His direction and will, it was a means to selfish gain. Within the Mishnah, which is the oral law for Judaism, we read the following concerning fasting. Fasting replaces sacrifice. It is greater than alms, for it involves the body and not just money. It brings about and guarantees a divine answer. It was a means to an end. Hypocritically speaking. So, 
hopefully, with just a little bit of that brief history of fasting, you get an idea of what was behind it from a positive perspective and what to avoid. If and when you fast, which will deal more with that, those questions or that question itself in our next two observations, it has to be about the heart, beloved. It has to be self-sacrificial. Man looks upon the outside. You know the passage. God looks upon the heart. Nevertheless, if one desires to biblically fast, we need more direction. That's not enough. And this leads us to our second observation, number two, the practice of fasting. Look at verses 17 and 18. Our our next two points will involve both of these verses. But look at verses 17 and 18 again. He says, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So I want to handle this observation by giving you several points to consider underneath this heading of the practice of fasting. These two verses definitely give us some direction. I'm also going to tie several other correlating passages in as well to build a case for us regarding what is the practice of fasting. With that said, I need to say this up front. Within this message, you're not going to hear from me that you are disobedient if you are not fasting. It's important to be upfront with that, abundantly clear. Any man that would tell you from a scriptural perspective that that is the case is misinterpreting the text. Why is that the case? Well, from the history of fasting, we know from a scriptural perspective, the only command that we have in Scripture, in all of its testimony, was specifically to the nation of Israel on the Day of Atonement. Within that dispensation of time, a temporary sacrifice, as we know, was critical for the people, accompanied by fasting. Although, what's the problem with applying the Day of Atonement in this church age? Well, let me give you one simple answer. From Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, which reads, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. If Leviticus 16 played a major role in connecting the act of atonement for sin, with fasting, thanks be to God that past act is now fully revealed as a foreshadowing of the once and for all atonement made by the great high priest, 
himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of our God. Amen. The once and for all great high priest. Beloved, if you choose not to fast, you are not disobedient in any way to the now progressively revealed complete and final canon of Scripture. Nevertheless, at the same time, I want to say this. I'm not making an argument that you should abstain from fasting in this church age. I'm actually going to make the argument that there are legitimate reasons and benefits for fasting in the church age. More on that in our last observation. Even so, if the case can be made for fruitful, self-sacrificial fasting in this church age, what does it look like? What are some guidelines? This leads me to those points I want you to consider, consider under this heading of the practice of fasting. First off, just looking at what we read in verses 17 and 18, it needs to be inconspicuous. Amen? This is in direct opposition to the theatric display of the Pharisees that Jesus is dealing with. You see in verse 17, Jesus says, when you do this, anoint your head and wash your face. The meaning behind is basically act and live normally. Take care of yourself normally. There's no extra um, elaboration of adding to yourself in this anointing. And I'm at a loss for words here, but you understand what I'm saying. This is a normal practice to take care of yourself the way you normally would. Compare that to purposely masquerading as you're so deprived and disheveled. Look at me. The act of fasting has nothing to do with letting everyone know how pious and spiritual you are. It's all about desiring the attention of God rather than man. Next, biblically speaking, if this would be another point under this heading of the practice of fasting, prayer is always attached to it. We saw this in our earlier examples from the Old Testament. What about the New? There are many examples I could give you. Let me give you two. Look over at the book of Acts. Chapter 14. Look with me at verses 21 through 23. And after they had proclaimed the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, 
strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many afflictions, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Turn back just to Acts chapter 13. You're right there. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So, Without a doubt, prayer will be an essential replacement of food if one is to self-sacrificially fast. Thirdly, I'll briefly say this. Even though, as I've already alluded to, we're believers in this church age, fasting is not a command from Scripture. Just from the words of Christ Himself in this passage, what do we see? We actually see it assumed as being practiced. I think that's helpful for us in developing a desire to self-sacrificially fast. He says, whenever you fast, when you fast. Fourthly, when it comes to the practice of fasting, I want to answer another question that I posed in the introduction. Can fasting entail something other than food? Something that we abstain from in order to seek a deeper dependence and trust in God for His direction? The answer to that question, I believe, is yes. And I want to demonstrate that from one text that is not specifically related to fasting. I get it. I fully understand that. But I do think the argument can, made, can be made from a logical implication of this text. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Some of you will be familiar with this text. Paul says in verses 3 and 5, Three through five. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So whether it's the physical intimacy between a, a husband and a wife or something else in your life that can distract you from your relationship with Christ, whatever it is, you name it, I do think an argument can be made 
that fasting from it for a time, partially or fully, and we don't have time to get into the nuances of partial fast and full fast, but whatever it is that you would fast from can potentially be an opportunity to seek a deeper prayerful dependence on God. Now, let me give you one other point to consider, and perhaps this is the most important. It cannot be a legalistic task, a moralistic behavior. This is what it was for the Pharisees that Jesus was dealing with. This is what it is for many today, sadly. Turn over to Matthew chapter 9. I want to show you how Jesus illustrates this by way of a parable. Matthew 9. Look with me at verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the attendants of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment. And a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they, are, but, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. So what's he saying here? First off, he's saying there's coming a day when the bridegroom will no longer physically be with them the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And because of that, some will feel the need to fast. And this could be the case for us today. On top of that, he's saying that a rit- ritualistic, task-oriented approach to fasting is like putting new wine into old wineskins. It won't hold. It will burst. It's an insufficient act of worship. Beloved, to simply focus on the task of fasting, and we've seen this all throughout this section, as if to check a box, is to miss the mark completely. I want to illustrate this metaphorically speaking. This is an illustration. I don't think it's too far a stretch. I want to remind you of Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 4. When he said, man does not live on bread alone. But upon every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. To focus solely on the task from an illustrative standpoint, is to focus only upon the bread. 
But to practice true self-sacrificial fasting is to hunger for a deeper relationship with God. Everything that flows forth from Him and His Word. So, hopefully, that gives us a little direction for the practice of fasting. In this last observation, I want to give you some extra motivation for why I think you should fast. And that's number three, the reasons for fasting. Look one more time at verse 18 of Matthew 6. Why would we fast? So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What I want to focus here as we start to land this plane, so to speak, is this reward. What I want you to see here is not selfish reasons anchored in a demand For a selfish reward. But self-sacrificial reasons. For why you might consider fasting. To begin with, I've mentioned this multiple times throughout this message. I can't mention it enough. I know I've said it in other messages. But it's about a greater awareness. Of our absolute need and dependence For him. Whether it was Christ fasting in his humanity. Or Moses. And Mount Sinai. Both accounts in Matthew chapter 4 or Deuteronomy chapter 9. Demonstrate the strength and the power that comes through a deeper communion with God. We mentioned Acts 13 and 14 earlier, but in those accounts, it was through fasting and prayer where direction and guidance came from God. Are there times for us all when you're in desperate need of direction, when you're in desperate need of peace, when you're in desperate need of guidance from the Lord and His Word. Beloved, I would contend. Perhaps this is a time for you to pray and fast. We mentioned this in the history of fasting. But other times when you're in a deep battle with sin. Or similar to Daniel's situation. Maybe there's someone near and dear to your heart who's struggling mightily with sin. Would you consider this as a reason for praying and fasting in that circumstance? What about when you're experiencing times of great sorrow, 
debilitating sorrow at that. We won't turn there. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David fasts and prays for the life of his child. And then finally, we mentioned this before as well with Esther. But are there times in your life when you're in the midst of a Category 5 hurricane of danger? In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, there's an account which I love where King Jehoshaphat was in a Category 5 hurricane of danger. And he felt the weight of the Moabite and Ammonite armies that were coming to destroy them. And in verse 3 of that chapter we read, And Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek Yahweh and called for a fast throughout all Judah. Beloved, whether it's a desperate need for direction, desperate need for deeper relationship, a great battle with sin, debilitating sorrow, or overwhelming danger, self-sacrificial fasting can, by God's grace, produce the exact reward you need. Whether that's direction and providential trust, forgiveness and victory over sin, a peace that surpasses all understanding, or deliverance and guidance in the midst of a storm. God delights to give grace to the humble. Amen? And self-sacrificial fasting, I believe with all my heart, is certainly one way to biblically and purposefully present your body as a living sacrifice, which is holy, which is acceptable, which is your spiritual worship to God. So, for the last four weeks, we've studied this small unit of chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, in the bigger unit of the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's giving, prayer, fasting, they can all be summarized, and we said this when we were there, underneath verse 1 of chapter 6, when Jesus says, beware of doing your righteousness, doing your righteousness, fasting, prayer, giving, whatever it may be. And it's not just reserved to those three elements. This is doing your righteousness, any area of your walk with Christ. Before men, to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. In light of that, I want to close with a final challenge. One quote, that's it, from a commentator on this, on this gospel. 
He writes, and I quote, Christians who judge successful ministries by external statistics such as attendance figures, membership, baptisms, and offerings should seriously rethink their criteria in light of Jesus' words here. God judges the greatness of his servants by searching their hearts, examining their inner attitudes, and seeing deeds done in secret. End quote. That's our heart, is to give glory to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ above anything to do with us. Amen. Bow with me in prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, which is so sweet, sweet as honey. Lord, forgive us for falling short in matters each and every day. We thank you, Lord, that our sin is forgiven. We do not presume upon that grace, that loving kindness, that mercy. Lord, help us to be men and women that are willing and able and ready to self-sacrificially give, to self-sacrificially pray, and to self-sacrificially fast. Lord, I do pray that you would use your word here today to cause us to be men and women that pursue holiness, that without which no one will see the Lord. Cause us and help us, Lord, to have a greater awareness and dependence upon you. And if there is anything in our lives that needs to be set aside, I pray even now, Lord, that you would work upon the individual, individuals within this church, listening on the live stream, convicting us, challenging us, to set aside the things that so easily distract us, and to commit our lives to you for your honor and for your glory. And oh God, one last plea. If there is one who truly still needs to set aside by the grace of God the sin in their lives to receive you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that you would convict them even now to do so, to come to you by grace and faith alone. It's in the name of our precious risen, and soon returning King, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, we pray. Amen.